This is Salt and Spine. I really love surprising people when they expect. A lot of people are scared when they're like, oh, I, you know, I don't eat meat. Like, I know, you you know, at that time, Mission Chinese food was like known for beef head, the terrines and like, you know, mala tendon salad and mapo tofu. And, but I love being like, oh, yeah, we have a totally separate menu. Like, I got to a point in my career where like, it was like funner and more challenging for me to make food that I wasn't comfortable with making. Hi there, I'm Brian Hogan-Stewart, and you're listening to Salt and Spine, stories behind cookbooks, and you just heard from today's guest, Danny Bowen. After culinary school, Danny worked at several restaurants in the San Francisco Bay Area before winning, in a surprise to himself, he says, the Pesto World Championship in Italy in 2008. From there, Danny became known for his work on innovative pop-ups, including Mission Street Food and Mission Burger. And then in 2010, he opened Mission Chinese Food inside another restaurant, Langshan, on Mission Street in San Francisco. It was the first major restaurant within a restaurant, and Mission Chinese was named the second best new restaurant in America by Bon Appetit magazine and the fourth best new restaurant in America by GQ magazine. The next year, the James Beard Foundation named Danny its rising star chef. In the next decade, it was nearly impossible to care about chefs and not see Danny anywhere you turn the corner. A salad partnership with Sweetgreen, ads for SoulCycle and Uniqlo, The Food Network, The Tonight Show, and then new restaurants. Mission Chinese came to New York City with an outpost a few years later, and then Mission Cantina followed. And then in 2017, Danny became even more of a household name when he was named as the star of the sixth season of PBS and Netflix's wildly popular The Mind of a Chef. Now, today, Danny is not running restaurants, pop-ups here and there, Judging Chopped, a YouTube series, and, of course, cookbooks. Danny co-wrote the Mission Chinese Food book with Chris Ying back in 2015, which was a behind-the-scenes chronicling of the opening and massive popularity of that spot. It also had recipes. But now Danny's here with his latest, Mission Vegan, wildly delicious food for everyone. You won't find and hear the famous Kung Pao pastrami. This all traces back, according to the book, to nearly a decade ago, when Danny became a parent, got sober, and started focusing on vegan dishes. Before long, many of the dishes on his restaurant's menu had quietly gone vegan. And it's all come together now in this form, geared towards home cooks. What will you find? Well, I'll let the book's PR materials spell it out for you. It all adds up to a book where Pasta Pomodoro shares a chapter with chewy Korean buckwheat noodles topped with neon pink dragon fruit ice, where one fried rice is inspired by veggie sushi hand rolls and another is a mashup of his favorite Thai takeout and Jose Andre's Spanish tortilla, and where kimchi is made kaleidoscopically with habanero, with pineapple, and with the seasoning packets from Instant Ramen. Hmm, sounds good to me. So let's head now to San Francisco, where we met up with Danny just about a mile away from that original Mission Chinese spot to talk cookbooks. Hi, Danny. Thank you so much for joining us on Salt and Spine. Thank you. It's such a pleasure to be here. Yes. Welcome back to San Francisco. It's great to have you in person for this conversation today. And um, congrats on your new cookbook, Mission Vegan. But before we get to this book and your cookbooks, we always like to start just by talking a little bit about you, how you got to where you are, your life, your career, um, all of that. So let's just go all the way back to the beginning. All right. Um, You're born in Seoul, South Korea, and, and pretty quickly, like three months old, you're adopted by a family in Oklahoma right. and moved there. Can you talk a little bit about your early childhood and what, and in particular, we're curious about your relationship to food, what sorts of things you were you're eating growing up? Um, were you interested in food? Like, tell us a little bit about that um, childhood in Oklahoma. Growing up in Oklahoma was um, something that when you're younger, you know, when I was younger, I didn't know that it was like different. I wasn't, I did know that I was, it was a different experience for me because I was an adoptee. My parents, um, we're not Korean. They're white. And so there was a lot of like, you know, mystery around that when people would see me, we would go out to eat occasionally. And I had an older sister that was also adopted, but she's um, not Korean American. She's okay. from Oklahoma. Okay. And so I would be with these three um, Oklahomans and then there was me. So there was a lot of like, people would be like, are we all, are you guys together? Or like, uh-huh. and of course, when I was in school, there was a lot of like people, people would oftentimes be like, you know, why are you, why are you different? You know, but aside from that, I didn't know that Oklahoma, um, specifically when we were speaking about like food and food yeah. culture was any, I just thought this is how it was, you know? So, um, as far as food goes, we grew up eating a lot of my dad worked for general motors. I talk a lot about this in the book Yeah, and my mom worked for the food pantry at the church that we went to. And so, you know, we ate 
six meals, seven meals a, um, a week, dinner would be at home. You know, sure. sometimes after church, we would go out to eat. Okay. And um, I always look forward to that. So I think that was my first, my first experience with like food specifically was, well, there's a couple. Uh, my parents were afraid of me playing sports. Okay. So they were, <laughs> I don't know if it's because they didn't want to like, we weren't in a financial situation where they could like, you know, being in sports is kind of expensive. Yeah, but sure. Equipment, all that stuff. So yeah. I don't know if it was because of that. And their excuse was like, we don't want you to get hurt. You uh-huh. know, we want you, we'd rather you just, you know, why don't you play drums at church or something like <laughs> right, that? Right, right. Um, so after school, one of the first experiences was like cooking with my mom when we get out of school. Most kids would go to like, you know, sports practice. I would come home and, you know, we would always prepare dinner. Sure. My dad would get off of work at five o'clock uh, from GM. He worked for General Motors. So he would come home and we would have dinner and every meal revolved around like a pound of ground beef and right. she would turn that into something. You know? Sure. Um, so I feel like my, my first experience of like restaurant food was looking forward to, you know, if we would set through church on Sundays and get through it and not like have to be reprimanded too much, we would sometimes get to go out to eat. And a lot of those meals would be like my favorite Tex-Mex restaurant, which um, I talk about in the book um, called Chilinos uh-huh. um, and or Olive Garden. Olive Garden was my favorite restaurant growing yeah. up, you know, <laughs> yeah. uh, because it was like my mom and dad made spaghetti at home, but it wasn't like. I remember they would run a promotion at Olive Garden, like a never-ending pasta bowl, and you could right. like mix and match uh-huh. your pasta shape and the pasta sauce. And that was like my favorite time to go out to eat was when they were running that promotion because I would gorge myself on pasta and I would also like, you know, be able to like have adventurous other things um, that sometimes my parents wouldn't want to eat. Sure. And when you're there, your family. When you're there, right? your family. <laughs> yeah. It's true. Um, have, have, do you go back to Olive Garden ever so as an adult? Like, I live in Manhattan. Still have nostalgia for it? And there's one in, uh, it's funny, my son is obsessed with these kinds of restaurants. Like Olive uh-huh. Garden. My parents never really liked going to Red Lobster. Okay. But after my mom passed away when I was like 18, my dad was like, oh, when we would go out to eat for family dinner, we would just go to, he would be like, we can go wherever you want. So we'd go to Red Lobster. Um, subsequently my son has eaten at both of those restaurants, like maybe once. And it's just been like, I'm like, Oh, you, cause he's always asking about it because sure. like, we don't have it. We don't eat at, eat there that often, but he's like, I want to try this place. Yeah. So I've taken him once to Olive Garden in Times Square. Uh-huh. He was obsessed. Okay. He was like, well, there was one in Chelsea, I think it's not there anymore. But then, uh, one time we went to Coney Island, uh, last year and there's a, we got turned around on the highway coming back. And so we ended up kind of in this like shopping mall area. Uh-huh. And there was a uh, there was a Red Lobster. Okay, and he's just like, this is my favorite restaurant I've ever been to. <laughs> yeah. So um, I have been back. Yeah. I do. You know, every time I go back to Oklahoma, though, I go to Chilino's. It's like sure. usually my first stop. And they used to have. A, it's a family owned and operated business. They had a bunch of them, and they expanded, and now there's just a few left. But this, the, I asked one of the servers. This guy, I think his name is Ruben. He still works there, and he was this wow. guy that we would go. He would wait on us when we were um, in high school and college, and. Um, the one in Bricktown in Oklahoma closed um, okay. downtown, but yeah, it's still still amazing. Yeah, <laughs> so good. yeah, there's some nostalgia there for sure. Yeah, so you you're coming home from school, spending time in the kitchen with your mom, yeah. starting to cook. I know also starting to watch some Food Network. It's oh, kind yeah. of about the time that Emerald is is becoming big on he was, Food Network. He's bamming it up, bamming it up. He yeah, so big. I mean, yeah, we, my mom would always have we had she had this little TV in the corner of the um of the kitchen. Okay, and she'd always be playing some sort of food programming. We would never be making the same thing she was making. Right. But that they would be making on the show. Right. But she would have it on just as like background noise. Yeah. And so I became obsessed. Like I, she would give me tedious like things like peel these potatoes, whatever. So I would do it while watching the food network. And there was something about Emerald's show specifically where he made it like, you know, I don't know if if you, if you're unfamiliar with Emerald's show, it was like a live. Right. Filmed in studio with an audience. So it's just like if Jimmy Fallon, his show was just cooking the whole time. Right. He had a live band. Yeah. He had all of these people that would be guests and like show him how to do things. But he had these like, I was also very much into professional wrestling as a kid. So I watched oh, okay. like WWF and like, uh-huh. there was something about his delivery that was like, it was very um, punctuated. He would just, when he yeah. would do the bam, it would, the whole crowd would respond to that. Yeah. Much like a pro wrestler having the signature call out or a move that people will just like lose their minds, you know? Yeah. And so I really became attracted to that. Um, that that ability for a chef or someone to like create energy in these large bursts of you know and also it's like there's no there wasn't there's no still isn't smell of vision you can't like sure. experience like what's happening there you want to know what it tastes like and i think they did a very good job on that show of like 
kind of like making you feel like you were part of it. Yeah. Um, so that was my favorite. I was obsessed with that. And also, you know, like I liked watching Jamie Oliver, like mm-hmm. the naked chef. That mm-hmm. was really cool. Cause I was very much into music as a kid and he was like in a band and like, yeah, uh, that was a really great show too. Yeah. Yeah. Emerald was big for me too. It was yeah. really a, a great show. <laughs> yeah. He's the, I mean, it's amazing. It's amazing what he did. And I was actually, um, fortunate enough to film with him a few years ago. Some his production, com- some production company called me and said, we're going to Korea and we'd love for you to um, come with Emerald. Like he's going to like five different countries and right. he wants to bring an expert with him uh-huh. to show him around. And I was like, you know, I would love nothing more um, than to do this. He's an idol of mine, but I don't speak Korean and I didn't grow up there. I mean, right. I'm Korean but, right? <laughs> and I'll go. Yeah. And I've been there a few times and my ex-wife is Korean and I, I became very educated very quickly on um, where to go and like what sure. to eat. But um, they're like, look, you know, that's cool. Like he doesn't really mind. Like he just loves you and like the idea of like what you're doing. So we got together. I talk about that in the book too, like where there was this moment I was so scared to even consider making Korean food. Yeah. Um, because to me, I just felt like an outsider and I got to cook with this um, amazing Buddhist monk chef, Jun Kwan. And she was just kind of, you know, there we had a translator the whole time, but she was like, yeah. why don't you cook Korean food? And yeah. I said, well, because I don't know how. And she's yeah. like, well, you're a chef. You know how to cook food and you need, you have to learn how yeah. to make Korean food. And so, and she happens, you know, she's a vegan um, uh-huh. chef. So it was like kind of interesting. I think a lot of times in life, you know, sometimes like farther down the line, you'll kind of, I'll remember these moments and I'm like, maybe was that the seed that was planted? Yeah. A lot of people now are like, why do you make a vegan cookbook? Sure. Why is it Korean? Why is it? And you know, that I, th- I feel like that was like, it all goes back to Emerald. Uh-huh. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> In some way. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so you're, you're obsessed with Emerald. You're watching Emerald. You're, you're cooking. You, your, your mom was sick for a yeah. lot of your childhood, right? And most of my childhood away when you're like junior, senior in high school. And that was pretty impactful for you. Yeah. I was a senior in high school. I think she was diagnosed, you know, she had a lot of health problems and, uh, she was diagnosed with cancer when I was like very young, like probably like, I don't remember. I remember when my best friend's mom told me about it because mm-hmm. uh, yeah, I just she, they picked me up from school and I was at their house and his friend my best friend at the time was like your mom has cancer and I was like what and then his mom got really mad at him and then sure. she was like no like we need to talk to you about it and I was like oh it's fine because at that point I was programmed like I was literally programmed from a very early age of like kind of calming people down or because I wanted or soothing people yeah because people were always like why are you different? Why are you, your, your parents are white, you're Korean. This doesn't make sense. And so I had this kind of like, um, ref, nerd, like this, this reflex, this quick, like, um, ability to be able to be like, Oh, it's okay. Everything's going to be okay. Yeah. You know? And so I kind of went into that mode. Um, it's kind of funny. I'm in the process of working on my memoir and it's like, I'm, it's like maybe a lot of this has to do me choosing my career path to be a chef is like so much about being a chef is like reactive time, just recovery time and being able to say like, Mm -hmm. Oh, this is wrong right now. We're going to fix it immediately. Mm -hmm. Um, a lot of it goes back to that. So, um, but my, anyway, my, my mom, uh, was sick from a very early age and then she struggled with, um, cancer twice. And then she had to have a heart transplant and there's a lot of, um, spent a lot of time in and out of the hospital and her being there, not being there. And so I actually took on the role of, I kind of had to cook for my family. Sure. Um, and I enjoyed it. Like I enjoyed being able to make sure that there was dinner on the table. I'd learned enough. I think I really started cooking by the time I was like 11 or 12. Yeah. I seriously. just became yeah. like, Oh, I got this. I got home. Right. I knew how, what to do. And then when she passed, I remember it's funny. Um, I'm not sure if I write about this in this book or in the previous mission Chinese food book, but my dad was like, we're going to go on a family vacation. Like, mm-hmm. We're going to go. I was 18 at the time. And I had just gotten this job at Abercrombie and Fitch in the mall. I was like so excited. <laughs> yeah. And he was like, we're going on vacation. We're going to Disneyland. And and I was like, okay, well, Emerald has a restaurant there. Right. I'm at Universal Studios. I was like, that's all I want to do. And I want to go to the Oakley store and get these Oakleys I've been obsessing sure. over. Yeah. So um, that Emerald experience um, at Universal Studios was the first time I'd eaten at a restaurant where they did like a table side garnish. Or like okay. they remember yeah. I got like a etouffee or like a... I, mean, right. I got a gumbo and Some they sort like of table side they poured, presentation. Yeah. They poured like the soup into your bowl. Right. From right. This nice little copper pot. And I was like, wow. And then remember that the, um, the doors of the kitchen were like, um, automatic doors. Uh-huh. So like, you know, I was used to like, 
you know, you don't really pay attention. Usually at like Olive Garden, there'd be like a swinging door. Right. Like, but this was like these, there was these really beautiful glass doors that like, you know, automatically came open. And yeah, that was my first like nice restaurant yeah. experience. Um, but yes, uh, my mom was like sick and I, that kind of like put me in this like caretaker role. Um, and I got to like, you know, food was, it wasn't really about expression at the time. Then there wasn't a lot of experimentation. There was some like, okay. but I also had to make food that my, my family would eat. Sure. <laughs> you right. know, like, so I was like, you know, I didn't want to go too hard outside of the box. Yeah. Um, you know, but when I was like you know, 16, 17, um, my friends would come over and we would barbecue a lot. Okay. And some of my best friends growing up, actually, um, my best friend, Anne Nguyen and her brother, Chaffee, they're Vietnamese. And so okay. I was like, actually, maybe like 15, 14, 15, 16, I learned a lot from her mom, their okay. mom. Mm-hmm. And, about like marinades and like, yeah. and so I kind of like got a little more experimentative, uh, a little bit like experimented a little bit more, you know, around 16, 17, 18. But you're not sort of set on a food career at that point. Like no, you're, not at all. I it, wanted to be in a band actually. Yeah. So I spent my, the first portion of my life, you know, uh, my adolescence in Oklahoma, just kind of telling people what they wanted to hear. Mm-hmm. And uh, again, like, you know, I was so, I'm so good at just kind of like being like saying what the odds are in favor of. So sure. all through, you know, junior high, high school, you know, there's this idea that you're supposed to know what you're going to do with it for the rest of your life. Right. And so I would just be like, Oh, I'm going to be a doctor. I'm, you know, I'm going to play into the stereotype and people are like, Oh, that's great. Yeah. That yeah. makes perfect sense uh-huh. to the degree that I actually went and started working at an eye doctor's office um, at the mall. Okay. Um, yeah. I had this guy, Kurt Massengale is his name. And I, he, uh, he had, he worked next to the lens crafters. Uh-huh. So I worked, I did eye exams all through, um, high school. And I was, you actually people, did the eye exam. I would do like the, um, yeah, like the, the, the pre op, the, the, the pre exam. Yeah. Right. yeah. Uh-huh. So like, and you sure. know, and the, it's actually crazy because in, in Oklahoma, the optometry, um, kind of what falls under like an optometry license as a, or as an optometrist or an ophthalmologist, you can do a lot of things. So I was like, yeah doing preoperative exams for like LASIK and like, right. you know, cataracts and st- like stuff like that. And, but I didn't really, I think once I kind of got there, you know, like once I got into that, like, you know, it's easy to say, well, this is what I'm going to do. Yeah. But when I got to the point where I was like, well, this is what I'm, I'm doing it. I was like, I don't want to do this. And yeah. so, you know, I was very early on when I was, you know, working at the eye doctor's office, I was like, well, you know, actually I would just want to be in a band, you know? Uh-huh. So I would like, play with this band and then I was, I had like, you know, I was in this like band and working at the eye doctor's office in the daytime and I kind of moonlit as like, and it was like kind of like a semi-Christian um, punk band. Sure. And, you know, uh, the, and by saying that, like we were called the Stellas and one of the people in the band, two of them, I think they started as a Christian band, but then they, some of us didn't want to be in a Christian band. We just wanted uh-huh. to play music. Right. And, um, so it kind of came to this point where that's what I was doing. I was like, I'm going to not be a doctor, <laughs> not go to optometry school. I was like, okay, all my eggs are kind of in this band basket. Yeah. And then when the band broke up, I was like, what am I going to do? And that's yeah. when I got a call from my good friend, Chaffee, uh-huh. um, who okay. had moved to San Francisco and was like, hey, why don't you come out here? There's an optometry, there's a culinary school uh-huh. and just come check it out. Yeah. And so I came to San Francisco, I was 19. And I took a tour of this culinary, California Culinary Academy when it was on Polk Street. Uh-huh. And I came back and told my dad, I was like, dad, I'm moving to San Francisco. I'm going to culinary school. And that, but the thing is, is the culinary school thing was my new doctor response to people where they're like, what are you going to do with your life? I was like, oh, I'm going to be a chef. Sure. That's when that happened. And I didn't really want to be a chef. I just wanted, I knew I couldn't be an eye doctor. And I knew uh-huh. I wasn't going to be able to be in a band. So I was like, maybe the chef thing. Yeah. And so I moved here when I was like 19. It took me three years to graduate an eight month vocational program because yeah. I just moved here from Oklahoma. You right. know, like I, right. I was finding myself and, um, it's kind of an accident that I actually fell into like cooking because the whole time I was here, they were telling all the students in culinary school, like you have to get a job in a restaurant Yeah, like, while you're here. You should also work in a restaurant. Right. And I was like, I'm just here because I want to tell people I'm going to be a chef. I don't really want to work in a restaurant. (laughs) Right. And so it took me like being here and then doing my externship in New York. Um, When I moved to New York to do my externship at Tribeca Grill, that was the first Mm -hmm. time I ever worked in a professional kitchen. Yeah. And I actually really enjoyed it. And so 
it's a long story, but worked there for a year and a half, um, ended up having to move back home to Oklahoma and then uh, for a while and moved back to San Francisco and kind of sunk back into working at a clothing store again, like partying a bunch. And I remember I was let go from the clothing store. I worked at my manager at the time. Her name is Sarah. And she was like, look, you came here to be a chef. You came here to go to culinary school. You've done all that. You need to go get a job at a restaurant. She's yeah. like, I love you, <laughs> but you can't do this. Yeah. And that's when I left and um, I felt sorry for myself for about 48 hours. And I went on Craigslist and I saw that Blowfish Sushi was hiring. Yeah. And um, I went and applied and, and I got a job there. Yeah. And you work there for a bit. You work at a few other restaurants in San Francisco. And then you finally sort of land at Farina mm-hmm. in the mission. Yeah. Italian restaurant for yeah. people who aren't familiar now now closed yeah. but start cooking and again your your Italian oh. repertoire is Olive Garden right yeah. like and now you're you're cooking at a, a um you know beloved and yeah. um respected authentic if yeah northern word, that, but, you know, northern Italian restaurant right like, it's amazing I mean so you know I think I worked at Blowfish Sushi for about I don't know like three years or something like that two and a half years uh-huh. and they jumped me up you know they're like you can work I just wanted to make sushi they're like well you're young you don't have any experience you can work in the kitchen a couple of nights and then you can work on the sushi bar like one night yeah and then as I was working there our kitchen manager got fired immediately uh, like the third night I worked there and they're like well, do you want to be the kitchen manager so I was this twenty four year old kid and they're they're like, you know, you're going to manage a kitchen of they, some of the cooks there were like in their forties and had been there sure. for, you know, 15 years or so yeah. at that point. So I took the job. I was very underqualified, but I, to my point, like, I, I loved working there. I was in love with working there. Like, um, but I knew I had to move on. And the chef that worked at Blowfish Sushi, this guy, Jesse Coity, he ended up going to work at this restaurant called Slow Club. Okay. And he, I thought I knew a lot from working in New York. Like I thought I knew how to cook and stuff. Right. But, like I just worked like hot app stations and garmoshi. I didn't never I never worked a hotline. Okay. And even at the at the sushi bar, um, you know, the the hotline was very limited. Like I made a lot of tempura and maybe like a steak, but like nothing sure. was like real line cooking. Sure. So I went to go work with Jesse at Slow Club. And I think there, you know, it was a very farm to table restaurant owned by this woman um aaron rooney and i it was one of my favorite restaurants i've ever worked at there we actually i actually got a lot of exposure to making italian inspired you know most california cuisine is there's a lot of in, italian influence yeah. in california cooking or at that restaurant there was and so when I, by the time i got to farina i thought i knew something about italian food but i knew nothing and <laughs> yeah. what i what i learned there um from the chef the chef there his name is paolo boa and actually in the cookbook the pasta pomodoro, which is one of my favorite recipes in the book, mm-hmm. is is very inspired by him. Okay. But um, I learned so much. And, you know, we, but we were learning from each other. At the time, he had just moved here from Liguria. He'd never had, like, a burrito before. Okay. Like, he didn't know. Yeah. I was like, you've never had a burrito before. So, I remember we used to, it was on 18th and, like, I think it was on like 18th and Guerrero or something. It was where that okay. restaurant was. It was kind of catty corner to Pizzeria Delfina. But there's a taqueria called Taqueria El Buen Sabor, like okay. on 18th and like Valencia or something. Okay. And so we would go get nachos. Like he fell in love with nachos. I yeah. was like, let's get nachos. Yeah. And so I would be teaching about like nachos and like you right. know, mission Mexican food. And he would teach me about like pesto and like you right. know, handmade pasta and stuff. So I worked there for a couple of years uh, with him. I ended up going to Italy with him and it's in the book, but I won the world pesto competition. I was the world pesto champion for two years in, in Liguria, which is a really wild story. And then after I left there, um, I, things kind of fell apart and are not with mine and Powell's working relationship. It was the owners of the restaurant. So I ended up quitting and then I was going to take a break, but then I ended up going to work with Jason Fox at bar Tartine Uh and that was, and that's where I met Anthony Mint, right? Yeah, and that's right. where, you know, Anthony started Mission Street Food. Right. We started Mission Chinese Food and the rest is kind of history. But, you know, that those next couple steps from there were like kind of what landed me in like, you know, operating restaurants for the last 10 years. Yeah. You write in, in terms of starting Mission Chinese Food too, you write in the book about um, spending nights with Anthony and Brandon Jew mm-hmm. and looking through cookbooks in yeah. particular. You know, you name a few like Fuchsia Dunlop's Land, Land of Plenty um, and that those kind of inspired you. Were, were you getting into cookbooks at that point? Had you been into cookbooks? Like where do cookbooks sort of 
come into your your life so i love cookbooks i obsess over cookbooks but the cookbooks i was into was like the michelle bra cookbook or yeah. like the mugaritz cookbook you know sure. I, would, I would go to like kitchen arts and letters in new york when i would go visit there i was obsessed with the books omnivore i was actually there yeah. yesterday signing a couple copies of the cookbook and it's kind of surreal but yeah i love that 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 shop is amazing but with um the cookbook angle like it's wild because I did not ever think to buy Chinese cookbooks. I was just obsessed with, on our nights off, we would go eat at like ZNY or Spices too. That was a very yeah. influential restaurant. Uh, I would go with Brandon a lot. And we yeah. would kind of like try to decode how they make these dishes because at the time, YouTube wasn't, there were no recipes on YouTube. There was no Instagram. Sure. Um, we would kind of like kind of pick things apart. But Brandon is actually really, I mean, he's one of the best chefs, you know, in the world. Mm -hmm. And he, Back then, he was. It's a funny story how I got into specifically Chinese cookbooks. And he's gonna, I don't know if he's gonna kill me for telling the story, but <laughs> basically, what happened was he was supposed to go work in um, Toronto. Okay. He's gonna work for this really esteemed Chinese chef. He'd worked in Bologna before for a while. Mm -hmm. And I think he also had worked in Shanghai. And so he had gotten procured all these books when he was abroad. Uh, outside of Fuchsia, Dobbs Land, uh, Fuchsia Dunlop's Land of Plenty, he had a lot of other like cookbooks that were just in Chinese. Okay. Like in these really crazy cookbooks. And okay. So he was going to, he was going to open Mr. G he was going to do Chinese food before like the bar Agricole, like before any, when he was at Adesso, he was actually, he worked at Zuni. He was going to yeah. do Chinese food first. Yeah. But he went to, he went to Canada and he got stopped at the border and they're like, you can't come into the country. I don't know why. I think it's like, there may have been a graffiti thing when he was a younger kid okay. like, that like, <laughs> okay. like kept him from going. Uh, but anyways, he was heartbroken. He had to turn around and come yeah. back. And he had this, like all these cookbooks and, um, you know, then he cooked and this is like, you know, multiple, many, many years later, he's telling me this story and he's like, Hey, you know, we told him mission street food was ending. And I was like, I want to do, I'm going to do Sichuan food because. I'm terrified of cooking Chinese food in a Chinese restaurant, but the owners are Cantonese. They don't eat spicy food. So if I make Sichuan food, which we all are obsessed with, yeah, um, they can't judge what I'm doing. And he's like, well, I have a lot of amazing cookbooks. And one day he, remember he rolled by a mission um, at the time at Longshan and just gave us this huge box. He had this like Dodge Ram pickup truck uh -huh. and he like pulled this big box cardboard box on the back and it was just all these cookbooks uh -huh. so we would put it back in the dry storage area and i would just go back there and sit on like a soy sauce bot um like a thing of soy sauce and just like yeah just read through these books and like yeah. kind of like be like what is this and like i would ask sue the owner mm -hmm. of longshan i'd be like what does this mean like you know can you read this to me right and um i remember it's funny because um because they weren't in english a lot of them no none yeah, of most most i mean of them. fuchsia dunlop was in english sure. um i think that was basically it and one. um and so, and I would be like so crazy, like, you know, they're Sue and Leong are like really sweet people, but they're not like food obsessed. They're like, whatever. Like, yeah, yeah they're right. like, yeah, we've seen this in China. It's like, right. it's great. You right. know, like, right. what is this? Like, oh, I think that's made with oat flour. I'm like, oh, where do we get oat flour? Like, we don't know. Like, yeah. they're just like, leave <laughs> yeah. us alone. We're going to watch our soap operas. <laughs> yeah. <know>? Um, <laughs> but, you know, like, it's interesting because I think in that time period, especially when Mission Chinese Food started, um, we had people that loved us. We were very polarizing. We had people mm -hmm. that loved us and people that loved to not love us. Sure. And there was this one specific gentleman in particular that really trolled us quite a bit. And I was so, you know, as a chef, you know, you you don't really focus. Like most creatives, you don't focus on what's going good when it's going great. You kind of focus on what's not, the one thing that's not right. going well. Right. And so there was this guy and I was so sad that he didn't like what we were doing. And um, he like really was like, I just want to educate on all these like blogs. He had a blog at a time. He was like, my wife is Chinese and like, I've been to China and these guys don't know what they're doing. And I, that was so like, for a long time, I was like, so tempted to just like respond and be like, why don't you come sit down with me and tell me what you know? Like, sure. what am I doing wrong? And what I failed to realize was at the time I was able to like, I was connecting with this family of uh, the owners of the restaurant, the uh -huh. cooks that worked there and learning how to make Chinese food in a very stubborn way. Like I was like, I'm going to make it to where you guys can't judge me, but they were so benevolent with their knowledge. And like, then I was able to actually learn how to cook Chinese food from these chefs there. Yeah. Um, and while this whole thing was like starting to blow up and they were like, Everyone was like, what? Are, it was like Ratatouille. They're like, what's the right. secret? Right. And, you know, I was like, I have no idea. I don't know what I'm doing. You yeah. Know? Um, but the secret was being able to engage in these, like, really cool conversations with them and kind of bother them and annoy them because of Brandon's 
bo- you know, box sure. of cookbooks in the dry storage sure. area. Yeah. And, and you didn't expect sort of, I mean, obviously I don't think you expected the fame and no. the, oh I, I know it was polarizing in a lot of mm-hmm. ways, but, um, and I think many folks know mission Chinese, but first sort of restaurant within a restaurant, right. like got a lot of national attention, like right off the bat. Yeah. Um, and just kind of skyrocketed you to, to sort of like chef stardom, I guess you could yeah. call it. Right. What was, what was that like? And how, how did you react, react and respond to that? You know, it's interesting. I, it's hard as a chef to like take praise, you know, you don't, you, you want it. And then when you get it, you don't want it. You're like, Oh, you deflect. Yeah. And so even right now it's like hard because over the years I've been like, why owe all of this to like so-and-so or so-and-so I, I can tell you there was like a defining moment for me was, um, I remember when like the food critic for the Chronicle at the time, mm-hmm. um, was at the restaurant mm-hmm. and one of my friends was like, I was at Commonwealth. They're opening Commonwealth next door. Yeah. So I was over there hanging out with Jason Fox and something. Someone yeah. came over and they were like, and, and they're like, Hey, you know, um, I think Chris Ying was like, Hey, you know that, um, Michael Bowers in the restaurant right now. I was like, Oh yeah, they've been in before. Like him and I think his husband sure. or boyfriend. And I was like, yeah, I see him all the time. Like whatever. They're just having lunch, you know, right. like, like not even totally oblivious to the idea that they could even be like considering. I didn't think that they thought that was a thing. I thought they were just like having a good time. Yeah. You know? uh-huh. And I always uh, treated it like that. I never was like, I didn't, wasn't doing that song and dance that you do with critics. And, um, they're like, you know, I think you should probably go back over there and like make sure that like everything's good because it seems like they're like, they're really like there. Yeah. You know, he's right. there. And yeah. so there was this, I was like, I don't know, whatever. Fast forward like a few months later and like, I think, you know, Michael Bauer named me like a San Francisco Chronicle, like rising star chef. Uh-huh. And so th- after that, that's when like things started to pop. Sure. And I was not ready for that at all. Like, you know, the reason that we started Mission Chinese Food and Mission Street Food is so we can kind of hide and be in the background. Like, we didn't want to work in regular kitchens. We right. didn't want to be chefs. I didn't want to, like, own my own business and, you know, never say never. I remember there was, like, a chat hound article where I was like, I will never own my own restaurant, you yeah. know? And um, uh, this is the That's best. you who said that? Oh, yeah. In this article? Like, yeah. I mean, uh-huh. you know, and so, but I remember that moment. Um, I remember uh, that happened, and I was, like, very grateful. Um, I didn't feel, I didn't feel like I deserved it. Like, I, I didn't know like what was coming and what was ahead. Yeah. You know? But then, um, and that would happen from time to time. I, we weren't ever like clocking the dining room like you do in, you know, after owning restaurants for 10 years, you kind of have this thing where you, there's a protocol, you know who's coming in. There's a hot list that you have of every critic on the wall. And, right. Like, your managers know. And at that time, it was like, it was like this, it was just this thing. Like we were, people would come in all the time. And people yeah. to this day still like, oh, you know, I ate at Mission, the Mission when it was there, when you were there. Yeah. Like, oh, I had no idea, you know? But I remember Mark Bittman came out um, from, I think he had come out from New York and and I met him and I didn't know who he was at the time. Like, uh-huh. I didn't know who anyone was. Like, sure. Um, and, you know, I think that started the whole New York press. I think he came and had a, a good time there. I think his daughter was living in San Francisco at the time. Okay. Maybe she still is, but she had brought him in because she just came there to eat all the time. Yeah. Uh-huh. And um, that's when that started happening. So we're getting like this like wave of like, San Francisco Press. I remember like Seven by Seven magazine. I was like so excited, uh-huh. and also Maria at Table Hopper. I was like, uh-huh. you know, I was like, wow, like this is stuff I read about. Yeah, like, I read yeah. about all the chefs I worked for and these yeah. things. Um, but I never let it get to me. I never bought into the idea that like I actually deserved it. Like, huh. it's a really interesting thing. I bet if you talk to a lot of chefs, they probably feel the same way. You yeah, know, like when you're in that moment, like. Um, it's very hard to like process right. success because that's a lot what we were going for. And then subsequently years later, you know, trying to get that back, you know, it's kind of like, I always, I always sure. make this equation. It's yeah. like the, it's like being in the grunge band where you're like, or like when you're being in like a garage band where yeah. like you're just playing to play with your friends. Yeah. And then, you know, it's, there's this rawness to it. There's this like, um, fearless naivety. Yeah. Now I wasn't even feeling, I don't even feel like I was optimistic when mission Chinese food started. I was just scared. I was like, I just want to like, I just want people to like this. And right. I really want the owners of the restaurant not to kick us out. Right. You know? So, <laughs> yeah. um, but yeah, I wasn't really prepared for the success. Yeah. Um, I'm think I'm grateful for it. Yeah. But that definitely caught me off guard. Sure. 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 And when did you decide to do your first cookbook, The Mission, which is really, uh, I think maybe folks have, you know, spent time with it, Mm -hmm. but is a, 
story of the restaurant as much as it is a cookbook, right? It's presented as kind of a conversation throughout between you and Anthony and Chris mm-hmm. Yang. Mm-hmm. And the format's really about the building of the restaurant. And yeah. when did you decide that that would, that you should do a cookbook? You know, one time when I was opening a restaurant in New York, um, I, I chose to open a restaurant while I was in the process of having a child. Um, okay. I think okay. chefs like love <laughs> yeah. to do that. They love yeah. to, I don't know. I can't speak for all chefs, but I think as a creative, a lot of creatives love to kind of like make things harder on themselves or like do things doing very difficult trying times like sure. th- to push through to get to the other side. So when we actually started the Mission Chinese Food Cookbook, it was when we were moving to New York. We're in the, I was in the process of moving to New York. The uh-huh. restaurant hadn't really opened quite yet, I don't think. And the New York restaurant. Yeah, the New York yeah. restaurant. Yeah. So we sold the book. We like met yeah. with all these these people and Chris was um I think at the time he had started doing Lucky Peach uh-huh. and he had done the Mission Street Food Cookbook with Anthony, which I wasn't yeah. really involved in, but they had a really, and Chris Ying is like one of the best people in the world. Like yeah. he was like, I was like, I'll do the book, but you really got to do the book. Like I, I'm busy doing all this sure. other stuff and I don't really want to do a book. Sure. You know? But he was, he and Anthony were really smart to be like, look, we need to memorialize what's happening right now right. and get it down. And so we sold, we did, we, the book started before I moved to New York and then it actually took three years to complete because in the process of doing so, this is in the Mission Chinese Food Cookbook, it, the restaurant got shut down by the health department right. and we had to move. Right. And so um, that kind of put it on hiatus and we were back and forth with the publisher being like, we can finish it, but maybe we want to like wait, you know, we want to have like a happy ending. Yeah, right. So that ended up taking um, a couple of years longer than it should have. Yeah. Um, I was also like in the process of like, I think I was like, by the end of that cookbook, I believe I was almost completely sober. Like I'd stopped drinking and still was doing drugs and like self-medicating in very unhealthy ways. But um, yeah, like that whole process, I look back and it was kind of a blur. You know, it was like, I think Anthony and and a lot of people that work with me at the restaurant at the time and Chris did a lot of heavy, heavy lifting. Yeah. Um, But it's great. I mean, I haven't... You know, when Mission Vegan, when we finished Mission Vegan, the publisher, we actually accidentally got a box of Mission Chinese food cookbooks too. And I didn't actually have one at my house. So I was thumbing through it and I was like, wow, you know, like this is amazing. It's amazing to see that. It's a great resource. I mean, when we were writing Mission Vegan, we were kind of trying to write, when writing the follow-up to Mission Chinese food, I was like, well, what are the things that me, myself as a cook would not necessarily take have taken away from the Mission Chinese food cookbook as a home cook? And so... The Mission Chinese Food Cookbook is, like you said, it's an amazing uh, resource and it's a restaurant cookbook. Right. There are recipes in there that are like, they're just from the restaurant. So right. there's one, right. I think the beggar's duck recipe requires like a couple gallons of duck fat, okay. which good luck <laughs> yeah. finding that. Right. Like, and right. then like you have to wrap a whole clone feed duck in like clay and lotus leaf and like, right. you know, <laughs> bake it in the oven and shatter it with a mallet. Like, you know, yeah. it's, it's definitely... It's chefy. I mean, even the the mapo tofu recipe, yeah. you have yeah. one in each book, right? Yeah. And the Mission Chinese recipe takes, yeah. I think, three days. Yeah. The one in Mission Vegan is like, what, 30 minutes an hour? Like, Yeah. We try to make it something I would actually make at home. Yeah. You know, like the Mission Chinese food cookbook was cool because, you know, we were able to like utilize a lot of, all those recipes are just from the restaurant. So in restaurants, you have like, you know, you can, you have to plan a couple of days out. Right. You know, you're you're using you're processing things a few days out at home you just want to i just want to come home after a long day and just throw something together yeah totally you're at a totally different point in your life yeah with definitely. this book than this book right yeah, you mentioned you got sober sort of towards the end yeah. of mission chinese cookbook mm-hmm. um you also became a parent yep. so all of these things i think are sort of impacting how you approach recipes how you approach cooking when did you sort of decide that this would be the focus though that it would be a vegan cookbook that it would sort of be what it is. I was at the Bronx Letters Benefit, this uh, benefit that happens every year in New York. And Dan Halpern, who was at HarperCollins and Echo uh-huh. uh, at the time, I was, you know, I have a booth there every year and we like, we like do this benefit. And was, I think we were putting out like, I feel like I made pesto that year or something, but okay. he came by the booth and um, my literary agent, Kim Witherspoon was there too, who I adore. And I, I was like, Hey, Kim, like, I, I remember I kind of clocked out the side of my, there was a giveaway. There was a book giveaway and Brooks Headley's book was there. Yeah. And I love Brooks. And yeah. I was like, Hey Dan, like how's Brooks's book doing? I think it's the coolest book I've ever seen. Like, and at that time I had been doing these like zines I, um, for this nonprofit. Um, I was a board member of called eight ball in New York. And 
I was doing these vegan um, mission Chinese food, but like vegan zines. And sure. Getting a big response, people really into them. Uh, and I said, hey, like I have an idea. Like I'd love to do like a, a vegan cookbook just through my eyes. You yeah. Know? And Dan was like, that sounds great. Why don't you come to the office in a few weeks and like bring your zines and we'll talk about it. And yeah. so at the time when we went, um, he was like, who do you want to write it with you? And I was like, well... He, you know, Chris Ying, by this time, Chris Ying had like gone, he's like in another like, um, universe. Like, yeah, you know, yeah. he's <laughs> like, you know, he, him and Dave, like, they're like, they've done like insane, amazing things. And yeah. he lives in California. So right. I was like, well, do you know anyone that's New York based that could like help me get this done in like less than three years, you know, uh-huh. maybe? And he was like, yeah, he's like, why don't you talk to JJ Good? And mm-hmm. so I knew JJ Good. Through, um, you know, Andy, he'd done the Pock Pock books. I knew right. April Bloomfield because he'd done her books. And um, I think he did the Morimoto book, which I owned. That was one of the first cookbooks I bought. But um, he and I met and, we, you know, like talked about it seriously. And I was like, you know, here's the idea. I was like, you know, people come into Mission Chinese Food all the time. A lot of friends, a lot of people, a lot of bands actually would be coming in out, out of town. And, sure. And a lot of people would have dietary restrictions. And like... For the first, you know, even we had Mission Chinese Food at Longshan in the Mission in yeah. San Francisco. Uh, there's a recipe in the book called, I, I think it's called like Longshan's Vegan Delight or it might be like Vegan Delight Dumplings. But okay. this is a, a case study in why you never say never. Because okay. when I was starting Mission Chinese Food, Anthony was like, we have to have a vegan dish on the menu uh, that carries over from Mission Street Food. Because right. he was very... He was very like in touch with like we have to have something for people right can't that we have to have something yeah he's like you don't have to make it Longshan will just make this dish it's called vegan delight it's a mushroom a shiitake mushroom dumpling in miso broth and I was like I hate that dish there's no like it's not hard enough you know uh-huh. just being a dumb young chef right right and um anyway so he in the book it's like a never say never thing because you know JJ was like why do you want to write a vegan cookbook and I was like well. I really love surprising people when they expect a lot of people are scared when they're like, Oh, I, you know, I don't eat meat. Like I know you, you know, at that time mission Chinese food was like known for, you know, having like beef head, the terrines and like, you know, mala tendon salad and mapo tofu. And, but I love being like, Oh yeah, we have a totally separate menu. Like I got to a point in my career where like it was, it was like funner and more challenging for me to make food that I wasn't comfortable with making. And so stripping away a lot of the protein and the fats that we were like, we had tons of and could use at our disposal and like kind of like working from like a, a vegan perspective. I've been doing for maybe like at that point, like six years or so like yeah. from, from basically just being in New York. Um, from the moment we got there, when I moved to New York, I was like, okay, I have to start saying okay and yes to people. Like, uh-huh. Cause I was scared to be in New York. I was like, how am I going to be different? And I was like, well, I'll just, I'm going to just be really nice. You know, right. I don't want to be like that chef that's like my way or the highway. Because I think that in that time for me, like, you know, chefs could do that. They could be like, no, we're not yeah. going to honor your dietary restrictions this way or nothing, you, you know. And so um, it kind of started. That's kind of the seed that was planted. It was like yeah. moving to New York, working, uh, opening my own business and just being like, well, let's try to start saying yes. Uh-huh. And then JJ and I are talking about the book and I'm like giving him a lot of resources. And then... um the pandemic happens, right? So we're in the middle of, you know, we had basically started, it was basically just all like mission Chinese food, uh, vegan recipes. Uh And this moment happens where the earth like stands still and we're all having these moments of clarity. And I was like, or reflection. And I was like, well, I want to do those dishes. um, But I also feel like I have my, my heritage and my, my life, you know, my heritage specifically has never been clearly defined. I've always been like this Korean kid from Oklahoma that, worked yeah. in an Italian restaurant. Right, like, right. But I was like, you know, like, what if, you know, like, I feel like maybe it's time, like, you know, and I'd done a podcast with um, my um, ex-wife, Young Me Mare, and she and I were kind of like debating, there's a lot of stuff happening in my life at the time. And I was like, you know, maybe is it okay for me even to like explore Korean cooking, mm-hmm. you know? And um, she's like, yeah, you're Korean. Yeah. You do whatever you want. Yeah. <laughs> like, And right. so... That's kind of like that. It kind of like that was the catalyst moment for Mission Vegan. It was like, well, I want to make everyone happy. Chefs, I mean, I'm, again, I'm generalizing, but I think for the most part, you're you you're. I'm a people pleaser, sure. And so with Mission Vegan, it was like I wanted to make a cookbook that you know you don't have to be vegan to eat vegan food or cook vegan food, right? And I think that like I'm not vegan. I I am not like a practicing vegan, um, but. 
I very much enjoy cooking vegan food. And I think there was like a lot of, um, there was an opportunity for me to put my spin on it and yeah. to put like, see it through my own lens. Yeah. And also, you know, selfishly in a way, like books are a way of memorializing where you are in your life. Right. You know, food. I've been very fortunate to find out so much about myself and to kind of like, like find my way through food. Mm-hmm. Um, like that's what I was saying, like define, like define something about me because so much of me has not been defined. Um, sure. you know, um, but that's more of like a self journey versus like a, a food journey, you know, sure. like on the, on a just very light, easy note, like mission vegan was like, but the time that happened, we were like, okay, well I was like, I want to make mission vegan as like a, more of a Korean leaning cookbook. Yeah. Things just started clicking into place Yeah, and it became like, it became like such a fun journey for me, but you know, like it was a lot about just saying yes and like being able to like memorialize a lot of the stuff that I worked on over the years that when people would come in to the restaurants and be like scared to even like bring it up, you sure. know, it was fun to be able to like, we have a vegan menu, yeah, like, you know, here. Yeah. You know, so, and we see that sort of self, uh, that, that journey of mm-hmm. self and, yeah. um, focus on Korean cuisine, like right away, because mm-hmm. the first dozen or so recipes are all kimchi recipes, right. vegan kimchi recipes. How do you approach a vegan? There's like a pineapple kimchi. How do you approach these various kimchis and, and creating great vegan kimchi? Well, I think from the, so that's the other thing is when <laughs> I was writing this cookbook, I was like, I want everyone to like me. I specifically don't, the people I don't want, to upset or I really want to, my approach with food has always come from a place of like, it sounds very cliche, but like I always want to come from a place of respect and mm-hmm. like a very honest place where I'm just trying, I'm a student. I want to learn about right. this process or this like technique or this cuisine. And specifically with this book, I was like, I just don't want to mess this up. You know, like, you know, I, it's kind of like kimchi. I've been able to travel to Korea quite a bit and work with like, when I filmed my mind of a chef series, right? Yeah. Um, the producers were like, what do you want to do? And I was like, well, I'd love to, I'd love to like, just, I need to go to China and cook for a Chinese master chef, a Sichuan master chef. Okay. And I need to go to Korea and cook for a Korean grandmother. Right. And then just, I just want to see how it goes. Right. You know? Right. And, um, with a kimchi specifically portion of this book, I feel there's a little long shot in there. I feel like it's a little bit of me, like not trying to be, I wanted to kind of like play by my rules a little bit and like not make it like them. This is the most authentic way to make this thing. There's a lot of that in there also, but the first book, I think the first recipe in the cookbook is pineapple kimchi. Yeah, I think so. And, and you know, I came at it from like a chefy approach where it was like, well, I haven't seen this or had it. There's a lot of naturally occurring sugars in pineapple that will make the fermentation process go quickly without the addition of like, you know, in a lot of regular kimchi recipes, you'll need fish sauce or salted fish or something to right. kind of kickstart that fermentation process. Right. But that recipe actually came about during COVID. Um, during the pandemic, we were doing takeout only at Mission Chinese Food. And when we had our location on East Broadway in Manhattan, and that was the first like kimchi recipe I really did. We'd been doing like a, a type of water kimchi for years. Like uh-huh. one of the first recipe, the first dish at Longshan was the, I think it's like a Napa cabbage um, or like a Sichuan Napa cabbage kimchi, okay. Um, which we did like a water kimchi, but then we would put like um, tingling oil and like Szechuan peppercorn and peanuts and sure, stuff on sure. top of it. So I understood fermentation to a degree, but I wanted to make these recipes. You know, kimchi is like one of those things that's so for me like intimidating. Mm-hmm. But when I would cook in Korea with like you know chefs and Korean grandmothers, like they're like, oh, it's just just do it like this. It's <laughs> right, easy. And right. I'd always be like breaking out a gram scale. I'm like, how do you measure the salt? Like, no, you just just do it like this. You <laughs> yeah, know, right. And so a lot of like kind of when I was working in Italian restaurants with Paolo, like just you know, Paolo doesn't have a, a memorialized like pasta dough recipe, but he makes the best pasta dough I've ever had in my life because yeah. he knows by feel. Yeah. And so there was a little bit of that, but you know, when you're writing a cookbook, it has to be consistent and something you can sure. replicate. So right. we took a lot of time specifically with the kimchi and making recipes that could be eaten pretty much the day of or okay. up to like, you know, four or six weeks lit, um, out, you know, right. um, with a longer, ferment. the longer ferment. I mean, some of it gets a little, the pineapple kimchi, if you let it go too long, it gets a little boozy. Sure. Um, okay. But, but to answer your question, like, yeah, the kimchi was really important for me. I also want to make something that like wasn't intimidating that people could use a ratio and, and yeah. actually do like I, I wanted to be able to be like I'm going to take this cookbook off my shelf and I have to like make something um, and actually just be like oh I can do this today yeah and, it's not, and you know those, those, I would say those are the um, 
like the beggar's duck kind of recipes from Mission Chinese food, like the really challenging chef recipes. Right. The kimchi would probably be the closest to that if you were to um, compare and contrast, but a lot of them can be eaten immediately too. So yeah. it's like you choose your own adventure kind of. Right, right. We're a show on cookbooks, obviously. I always like to ask what you think makes a great cookbook. Well, there's a lot of things that make a good cookbook. I feel like it depends on what type of cookbook you're looking for. Sure. So like, um, in my opinion, like, Mission Chinese Food is a restaurant cookbook. Right, um, right. I was at Omnivore yesterday and I was asking um, one of the associates there, I was like, yeah. what What cookbooks do the best? You know, yeah. Like, uh-huh. like I, is it just me or like, you know, like, like, what is it? Does it like a book just on like masa or just on noodles right. or like, right. do restaurant cookbooks even sell? And she's like, it depends. Like some restaurant cookbooks sell incredibly well. Sure. You know, some yeah. don't. And so it's a lot of, a lot that goes into it just from my outside perspective and like, um, I think that like it depends on what type of book it is. So what makes a great cookbook is with the first Mission Chinese Food Cookbook, it's a lot of narrative in there. Yeah. It's like it's almost like a memoir with some recipes in right, there. Right, right. Um with the Mission Vegan Cookbook, we doubled the amount of recipes. I think there's ninety nine recipes in there. Okay. And less narrative. I wanted this to be like a something that people would want to cook out of. I think to, so I guess sure. easy answer is like what makes a great cookbook is something that people want to cook out of. Yeah. But they're like Oh, I want that. I want to do that. Yeah. Um, and the recipes work. That's the biggest thing with the Mission Vegan book. You know, we poured over so many times with our recipe tester and developer. This woman by the name of Mariko Makino. She is amazing and really helped, like, kind of put my chef brain to use. Sure. <laughs> and, yeah. like, you know, right. like, right. this will work every time, no matter what. Right. So um, I think it's got to be something you want to cook out of yeah. and that, like, you get good results from. And with recipes that work, you yeah. know, but you know, in some instances, like I'll buy cookbooks because I want to know about someone's process or journey and not really, but I don't think that's, that's, more, you know, I think that that's not really, it is a cookbook, but I think of a cookbook now after Mission Vegan, I think of it as a book that has recipes that you cook out of. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we always end with a little game. So I thought we would play a, a vegan game today. Nice. So I, I took our, our cards and pulled out, I think I pulled out anything that's not vegan. Okay, if we get, fine, if we get one, we, we, can, can, we, can, we can skip we can over it. Um, but we kind of play this game a little bit like Chopped, the TV oh. shows, right? So the, you could, yeah, go ahead. <laughs> I actually was, uh, my dreams came true the other day. I got to be a guest judge on Chopped. Oh, you were? So it comes out oh, in like okay. six months and I was oh, there. Okay. And it was the best experience. Oh my god! But oh, that um, sounds fun. Yeah, I, I don't want to give too much away. But I was I was on the the panel as a guest judge, um, and this other Korean American, a Korean chef um, by the name of Esther Choi was on there. Okay, She's amazing. Like, yeah, so good. Uh, and then Ted Allen's there. And right. One of the OG uh, judges was there. Um, Scott right. Conant. And so I was like, wow, this is like crazy and like amazing and fun but yeah, yeah like I, when i saw the That's cards so cool. i was like oh it's like chopped yes you it know? is it is very much like chopped yeah. um well now i feel like it's gonna be a breeze now that you're a judge no um <laughs> but basically we, we sort of play it like chopped so there's four you know protein flavors which okay. are herbs spices vegetables and then secret ingredients which okay. are just kind of random um so you could draw one from each and okay. that's your basket you know okay. you can oh, sort no. of assume <laughs> just like on chopped you have a, a basic you know pantry okay. um to work with but tell us how you might make um like a mission vegan recipe okay out of those ingredients how Do does I get that shuffle sound? it sounds amazing i'm terrified i never <laughs> actually you know i get asked a lot um um and i'm gracious for this but i get asked a lot to be on like competitive cooking shows i've never done it yeah i don't know i'm just terrified to lose well like, this you know. is a, a no stakes yeah, version because you don't actually have to cook anything and nobody so, actually has to eat it so no, no um challenge. it's just all conceptual um, so you can draw one from each okay, feel free to for, shuffle or okay yeah draw i'll just from draw from the top if you want okay the top. yeah we Hopefully can do two rounds too so the protein is tofu okay the vegetable sweet potatoes i already know what i'm gonna do okay it's amazing flavor oh nutmeg interesting and sriracha okay is the secret ingredient. so the protein is tofu vegetable sweet potatoes flavor is nutmeg and the secret ingredient is sriracha so i'm going to cheat a little bit because in my cookbook there's a dish called i believe it's it's one of the first dishes i ever made at mission chinese food but it's called um i think in the book it's called pea leaves and kabocha broth or okay. something yeah. like that yeah and it's got um tofu skin in there um it's like these yuba sheets that are dry, dried bean curd stick that um is basically like the, the when you if you ever like boiled milk on the stove right the skin forms on top right right that's what yuba is yeah it's okay soy milk sure so there's um these sheets of dried yuba that you can buy at um chinese grocers korean grocers like many like most asian markets have okay it. and um, we rehydrate them overnight and they become almost like this chewy noodle um, okay okay so that's tofu. And when we're not like in, we're doing a dinner tomorrow night. Um, 
at Mr. Jews. Right. And I don't know if we're going to use um, Yuba in this dish we're doing. We may just use tofu. So okay. a lot of times the, the dish in itself itself is um, it's like a broth built around a roasted piece of pumpkin or kabocha or sweet sure, potato. Something sure. beautiful and orange. That's yeah, the only yeah. criteria. <laughs> like it doesn't matter if it's a sweet potato or squash or pumpkin. Or, yeah. But a lot of times it's roasted. So I would, what I would do is I would take the sweet potatoes. Um, there's a recipe also in the cookbook for a dessert called Sandy Sweet Potatoes. That's right. Yeah. Um, for my dear friend, Sandy Liang. It's her favorite dessert in the world. She taught me how to cook sweet potatoes. I would always be really chefy and cut them and like salt them and yeah. you know, roast them cut side down. But she was just like, just put them in the oven like, yeah. on the rack and just like, right. let them cook until like they start to like kind of seep out their sugary like syrup. And right. That's when you know it's done. Right. And so I would roast the, the sweet potatoes like that. I wouldn't put them in any salt or fat. I would just throw them in the oven okay. around 375 yeah. for about an hour until uh-huh. they start to just like get really sweet. That would let them cool a little bit. And um, sweet potatoes and nutmeg are a match made in heaven. Yeah. Right. So um, I would basically in the cookbook for that dish, we will, um, I would just saute some like alliums, like some garlic, um, in a, some really good olive oil. Sure. There's a lot of olive oil in the cookbook. Good olive oil, some garlic, maybe a little bit of chili. Okay. Um, let that kind of bloom and sweat, but not like color at all. And then I would break up that sweet potato with the skin. The skin is yep. so incredible uh-huh. the flavor. Throw it in there and then add a little bit of, um, mushroom stock or like maybe even like water and mushroom powder, which is like a mushroom bouillon. Yeah. Let that come up to a boil and then, um, skim it to like kind of remove any like impurities. And then I would break up the tofu in there. And then um, I know that there's not, can I only use these four ingredients? Or it's like, I you already can, used you garlic could, and you olive could, oil. Yeah, you can add a few, you know. So I would, I love to add pantry like items or things. Of like a soup, a brothy soup or something. Yeah. I love throwing a handful of like greens on top of that. Okay. It could even be salad greens. One of my son's favorite things in the world is in New York at the corner store, there's this like clamshell, uh, like a little plastic container of this, yeah. these greens called like um, super greens or something oh, like that. Oh, sure. Yeah. And it's, um, Things by this company called Organic Girl or something, but okay. uh, I'll make soups and stuff and just throw a handful of those in at the last second uh-huh. and like let them kind of wilt in there. Sure. So you have like this like sweet potato broth with like broken up tofu in there, and uh, and I also in the beginning when I'm sweating out the um, garlic and the olive oil, I'll grate some of the nutmeg in there. Okay. Kind of bloom yeah. that spice and yeah. get that, and then um. So this tofu, sweet potato broth, it's very umami and savory because the mushroom stock or mushroom powder. Right. You got your vegetables in there um, because you've thrown in a handful of like greens. It could right. just be spinach. And then at the end, I would just like squeeze a bunch of sriracha in there and make it spicy. In the cookbook, it calls for like a, a grilled chili paste, which is um, okay. which is very easy to make. Um, but who doesn't love sriracha? Yeah, right. You know, so, um, <laughs> yeah. so it's, you know, you have this like sweet, salty, umami. The, the nutmeg is like a nice warm spice. Um, and then that heat of that sriracha, which sriracha has citric acid in it too. So it's kind of right. like a little like um, tang. Right, like a right. Pop to totally. It. Yeah. So I'd make that um, with my four. Did you load the deck? Did you I did not. Up? No, okay. so I, I think like, that sounds great. Like so good. Like so <laughs> that, that was a perfect combo. All right, cool. uh, let's do one more round and then we'll close okay, that. Okay, we'll okay. see if you let's get a harder one. I know. Okay. I always feel like you either okay. get a hard one on the first go and you get an easy one or you get an easy one and this will be a harder one. So let's see if that sticks. So this one is seitan. Okay. It's a versatile wheat gluten made to taste like pretty much anything Uh um and that one's a little harder bell pepper which can be a people love and people love to hate bell peppers i I actually love bell peppers i love them a lot um mint oh my gosh this is good i feel like i know what i'm gonna make probably gonna make a salad okay okay oh gummy okay (laughs) (laughs) this is the card people hate to get this is the and i actually i'm not sure if they're vegan i assume they're not but i mean maybe but there are vegan gummy bears there are vegan versions yes yeah yeah vegan gummy bears so what i would do is i would melt the gummy bears down to make like a mint syrup so i would melt the gummy bears down sure and i would definitely um i would melt them down um and once they were melted, I'll probably microwave them because, if, you know, there's so much sugar and gelatin in the gummy bears that would melt. They would probably stick if you're cooking them in a pan. Sure. Or yeah. in a nonstick pan, you can do that. But yeah. I'd throw them in the microwave with the mint, cover that, obviously. Yeah. And melt that down. Um, and then I would take it out. And then I would add, throw it into a blender. And okay. I would add um, maybe some, like, vegan fish sauce that's made with pineapple. Yeah. Um, okay. It's got a lot of umami and a lot of, like, um, it's pretty salty. And maybe I would like actually take a bell pepper and seed it and throw that in there as well. Okay. And then some water. And I would like spin that and make it into like a really, it would probably come out. When I was in culinary school, my favorite first sauce I learned how to make was a um, 
bell pepper coolie. I thought okay. that was so cool. Okay. It's yeah, like, sure. oh, I can put this in a squeeze bottle and decorate a plate. So <laughs> right, right. I'll make like a, basically a looser coolie, like a vinaigrette with um, like sweet, salty with a fish sauce, the vegan fish sauce mint as the um, flavor. I would save half the mint and to keep that fresh. Yeah. Uh-huh. Um, and what I would do is I would, I would take the seitan. I would like sear it. Um, there's a recipe in the book actually for a, I think it's called tartine tofu pickles. Um, yeah. And you know, Chad Robertson and Liz Pruitt, um, I bugged both of them over the years for the recipe for their carrot pickles at tartine right, bakery. Right. They're incredible. Um, so we basically made a version of like a seared piece of tofu that we pickled in that pickle brine. Right. And it took on almost this texture of feta. I was amazing. So, so amazing. Wow. Okay. Um, so I would sear off the seitan, um, I would maybe like marinate it if I had time. I would marinate it. If we we're on chopped, I only have 30 minutes, sure. which is yeah. not enough time. Yeah. <laughs> but I would sear it off. Um, and I would slice it like really thin, like, okay. straight, like cut it as thin as I can. Um, almost like a, like a noodle and okay. then, um, mix that with a handful of the mint and then dress it in like that bell pepper vinaigrette, like the bell pepper right. coolie, you right. know? Uh-huh. Um, yes. and, um, and yeah, and I would probably add some, uh, probably some like citrus would be really nice with that because you have oh, sure. like the, the mint, mint and citrus together as a cold salad. One of my favorite restaurants in the world is Burma Superstar and that yeah. tea leaf salad and the yeah. rainbow salad. I'm thinking like, I would also just add I, 30 oh yeah, other sure. ingredients right. and make that salad. <laughs> right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. But yeah, gummy bears. I, I love Good it. Way. That sounds delicious. And cool. probably the bell pepper coolie of your culinary days did not have uh, gummy bears. So this no. is a totally different, None totally different take. Um, well, this was so great. Thank you so much for joining us. Of course. Danny. Yeah. Thank you for having me. And I'm, I'm very happy. I'd love to come back anytime. Great. We'd love to have you. And that's our show for today. Thank you so much for listening. As always, you can find bonus content from today's episode and all of our shows on our Substack at saltandspine.com. There you'll find two recipes from Danny Bowen's Mission Vegan, one for a kimchi stew and another for a chili fried rice. If you like hearing from your favorite authors on Salt and Spine, and I hope you do, please click subscribe to this podcast wherever you're listening. We also love to see your ratings on Apple Podcasts. Our show today was produced by me, Brian Hogan-Stewart, and our producer, Leah Worster. Our kitchen correspondent is Sarah Varney, and the Salt and Spine original theme song was created by Brunch for Lunch. Salt and Spine is typically recorded at the Civic Kitchen in San Francisco's Mission District. The Civic Kitchen offers digital and in-person classes for home cooks, and you can find out more at civickitchensf.com. Thanks, as always, to Jen Nurse, Chris Bonimo, and the Civic Kitchen team, and to our friend Celia Sack at Omnivore Books. We'll be back next week with more stories behind the cookbooks you love.